Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Season's greetings all, and welcome back to the Talkville 21 podcast. Today, we're talking US politics. Last month saw us go through a surprising bout of midterm elections, with the Democrats ultimately managing to retain control of the Senate and minimize losses in the House, a highly surprising feat from a historical perspective. With us to analyze the results, as well as look forward towards the next legislative session and the upcoming struggles for party leadership, is geopolitical analyst Pascal Siegel. Pascal is an industry veteran, with 20 years of experience in the field and across some of the most pressing issues in American policy. Her aptitude in cultural analysis, foreign relations, and political risk make her contribution to this discussion highly sought after. She is also a kindred spirit to Tuckville 21, with a background that spans both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you find our conversation as fascinating as I did. All right, well, Pascal Siegel, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right, so I was hoping to talk today about the U.S. midterms and the impact they've had both on democracy and on the the electorate in a, in a general sense. So why don't we start with the broadest possible question and ask, what happened? So what happened is the Democratic Party did better than the party in power usually does in the midterm elections. They retained control of the Senate and they may even get a 51st seat on December 6th if uh, Raphael Warnock in Georgia beats Herschel Walker. This would be a reasonably big win because it would put them one seat ahead of the Republicans in the Senate, so they would not have to share committee assignments. And they lost control of the House of Representatives, This was expected, but they are going to lose it maybe by five or six seats. So at the lower end of what was expected. So I think that overall, the Democrats did as well as they could have done um, in these elections. Unless I'm much mistaken, this is one of the only times in which the party in power has retained control of the Senate in recent memory. I think the the other exception was uh, 2002, the midterms? Well, in 2002, the the party, the Republican Party, yeah, kept control of Congress. It was in the back of the 9-11 attack. The country had rallied against, around, not against, but around the president. The country was at war. It was a different moment, uh, a different national moment, a different national mood. The mood today was much more partisan, much more divided. And the economic situation is, you know, is difficult for a lot of people. Inflation with the slowdown in, in the economy. Yes, the, this was very different. Well, that begs the question. What do you think were the key issues that decided the election? I think the voters sent three messages back to Washington. The first one was that they were not particularly happy with the country's direction, overall direction, because of the economic situation, because of inflation, because of gas prices, etc. 
more voters disapproved of the Biden presidency than approve of it. More voters think that his policies hurt the country rather than help the country. You know, this kind of thing, a 10-point difference for each question, basically. So that's the, that's the first message. The second message that public opinion sent is they do not want to hear about the big lie that the elections, the 2020 presidential elections were stolen, that the electoral system is undemocratic, manipulated, that they are cheated out of votes. The former President Trump endorsed roughly 300 candidates. And many high-profile ones, you know, for Senate races, governor races, and in the major races, the high-profile races, pretty much all of them, except for J.D. Vance in Ohio, lost. They lost because, according to the exit polls, because voters felt that they were a threat to democracy. That, to me, is the second message that the voters uh, sent. The third one is they wanted to protect abortion rights, the right to access abortion, not just in blue states where abortion is not, not yet under threat, but many in red states. There were five questions about abortion in five Midwestern and red states. All five questions about restricting abortion were defeated, and the questions about protecting abortion right won. So that, to me, are the three key issues that drove the vote the way it did. That's very interesting because we often hear about the, you know, the incredible partisan divide. The American public, if I remember correctly, agrees on the question of abortion. You know, like 90% of the public agrees on, you know, uh, a certain amount of, uh, of restrictions. I believe it's 15 weeks, something along those lines, 15 to 20 weeks. So it's, it's interesting that this is an issue that gets so much national play and is always described in the most polarizing terms when you know, there's, there's such a consensus. Yes, that's actually correct. There is a wide range consensus that some abortion access somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 weeks should be legal. The public is much less polarized than the political class. Hmm. It's the same thing on gun control. Hmm. Eight out of 10 Americans think that there should be some gun control restrictions, but the political class is much more polarized than the public. Hmm. Well, we'll come back to the issue of polarization, but I want to talk just for a moment about what you were saying about the, the issue of democracy. Could you go into a little bit more detail as to how the idea of the Republican Party's swath of election-denying candidates being a threat to democracy, how that affected the election? For now, for now, it definitely played against President Trump. Hmm. He waited very heavily during the primaries, uh, the Republican primaries, to push mainstream candidates that were not election deniers. He bet against them. He funded candidates to outflank them on the right. And he won many of these, he won many of these primaries. Hmm. On 
top of that, the Democratic Party decided that it was better for them to face these kinds of right-wing candidates in the general election. So they also funded some primary election deniers and uh, really extreme right-wingers during the, the primary. Both strategies were very successful in the primaries, and they pitted a swath of election deniers against Democratic candidates in the general elections. The Democratic Party's gamble worked. Those people were defeated in the general elections, except for J.D. Vance in Ohio. So there was a lot of discussion inside the Democratic Party and inside, you know, among Democratic supporters about whether this was really a viable strategy for the Democratic Party to, in fact, inflate this wave in the primaries in hope of defeating it. I will say in the short term, it worked. There is no doubt. Could that backfire in the, in the long term? We'll see. The other thing I think that we need to keep in mind is that all these candidates, these Trump-backed election deniers who lost, all conceded their defeats pretty quickly, except for Kerry Lake in Arizona, the candidate for governor, who, you know, lambasted the, the organization of the election after she was uh, defeated. All the others just conceded graciously, democratically, like it's done everywhere. This is a win. Honestly, this, you know, the American people have spoken and the, the system has worked as it is expected to. Hmm. I think that's an important point. I also think what you were saying earlier about the way that this was not necessarily uh, a vote of support for the Democratic Party is an important nuance that might be lost uh, in a lot of the commentary that I'm seeing about the post-election. Do you think it's likely that the Democratic Party will view this as a vote of confidence and just continue on along its current trajectory? Well, I think when you win an election, no matter what the reason is for you know winning, you will always see it as a green light to implement your agenda. Hmm. That's how electoral democracy works. I think that the Democratic Party will continue to push some of its agenda, yes. Whether they can pass it remains to be seen. I mean, on some big item, tax policy, like immigration policy, like criminal justice reform, trade policy, it will be very difficult because the ability and the impetus for each of the camps to negotiate in good faith and find compromise is pretty slim. What can we expect from the divided government for the next two years? So traditionally, with a few exceptions of landmark legislation passed in, in divided Congress, usually in a divided Congress, it's harder to pass legislation. Right, because you need to have both parties agreeing on the legislative package. Each party is going to control each house, but by very slim margin. That does not necessarily mean more bipartisanship, because 
you need everyone in your caucus to win. We are living in an era of hyper-partisanship and you're going to have radical elements who will not want to compromise. I personally believe it's going to be very hard for Biden to pass any kind of significant reforms. Neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party have much of anything in common in terms of policy priorities. And, you know, the incoming Republican leadership has been talking investigations, Mm. (laughs) you know, of the Biden administration, possibly impeachments, but not much more, not much in terms of policies for policy initiatives. What you are likely to see, though, is more brinksmanship, in particular about the raising the debt ceiling, unless the lame duck session, so the the current session that ends before the Christmas break, can pass a resolution to raise it again for the next, let's say, year, year or year and a half or two years. Well, this is a question of opportunity, but do you think uh, do you think that's likely? I think the Democratic leadership would be foolish not to try. I think that they will try. Whether they get there is, I would say, is 50-50. Do you think we should have expected these results? Uh, Yes, I think we could. And I think that to an extent we did. You know, the results are in the ballpark of what 538 predicted. The Republican margin will be on the lower end of the estimate, but that's mathematically, scientifically sound. What happened is that ahead of, first of all, back in the spring, back last spring, before the abortion decision, the Republicans were expected to do much better based on historical record and based on the state of the economy, the disruption to gas prices, etc., as a result of Russia's war on Ukraine. The abortion decision last June changed the field because we saw mobilization in the Democratic Party and more enthusiasm in the Democratic Party about voting. But starting like August, September, the Republican Party started releasing these partisan, really partisan polls that were skewing, definitely skewing pro-Republican to mess up the averaging of polls, which is like a, you know, strategic influence, strategic communication strategy to steal the conversation. But in a certain way and keep this idea that a red wave was coming, etc. And it's maybe good for mobilizing, it's good for uh, shaping the national conversation, but it doesn't really change the scientific facts. Hmm. Well, I actually find that incredibly confusing because I'd assume that it would do the opposite. I mean, like, that's certainly the narrative that emerged after the 2016 election, that the polling estimates that Hillary Clinton would win handily resulted, uh, and, you know, and the constant media focus specifically on the idea that there was a very low chance of Trump winning the presidency. All of that contributed to Democrats not going to the polls. 
and this is a midterm election that traditionally have a lower voter turnout. So I, I don't know, that seems like to me, I mean, I, I personally think that may be a very just creative way of shooting oneself in the foot. I think so. This participation in this election was very good hmm. for midterms. It was very good. The abortion decision seems to have motivated a lot of young voters and young voters in the U.S. trend democratic. Hmm. But that's a variable that the Republican Party did not control. Hmm. It did not control the Dobbs decision. They had to deal with that. And the way that they tried to control it was trying to not talk about it. <laughs> but that was not enough. Yeah, no, no sweeping issues under the rug tends to not, um, not have great results. Although, again, that's what a lot of people expected about the economy. I think that the economy did have a vote in this election in the fact that Republicans retook the House. It did have an impact. I think it did not have the huge impact that the Republicans wanted it to have. That was their message. Their message was twofold in this election, inflation and crime, crime and inflation. And inflation was important. It was the most important issue for a little over a third of the electorate, but so was protecting democracy. So was abortion. The issues cut both ways. Understandable. Let's talk about democratic institutions. That was on the ballot, as you mentioned. There was a lot of talk specifically about the stability of the U.S. How do American political institutions and democratic institutions specifically fare when compared to those of other countries? Particularly in the context of recent elections, I know there was one in Brazil as well, which also resulted in a fairly graceful concession. Likewise, there was a major election in France in the spring. What's your perspective on that? I think democracy was definitely on the ballot this year because of the Trump endorsed candidates, because the Democrats made it, you know, made the defense of democracy an electoral issue. It's democracy won on November 8th. Right. The, the election deniers, by and large, were defeated in governor race, Senate race, and secretary of state races. Secretary of state is particularly important because they are the ones organizing hmm. the next election, the next presidential election. The same goes for Brazil. Bolsonaro basically campaigned on the same playbook as Trump. He lost to Lula and he did concede without saying, I concede. Mm -hmm. But he allowed the transition to go forward. And the institution, the Supreme Court of Brazil said, that's a concession speech. So with a little bit of help from the institutions, the system played out. I think that we still have to be vigilant in the US compared to Europe, for example. So in Europe, you've seen the rise over the last 10, 15 years, really the rise of right-wing parties whose ideologies are tied to fascism, in some cases, the Nazi party, 
or illiberal, if not fascistic, but really clearly illiberal authoritarian traditions. But for these parties to increase their appeal and become government parties, they tend to moderate their language and their political platforms. You've seen it in France last year with Marine Le Pen, where, you know, she dropped the Brexit plan or the we're going to leave the euro plan. You've seen it with Meloni this year in Italy. You're also seeing it with the right wingers in Sweden. Well, there is, you go up in popularity as you drop the most extreme or the most disruptive ideas in your platform. Now, if you look at the U.S., there seem to be fewer safeguards because the illiberal tradition, or without saying it's maybe not a tradition, but where the illiberal trend grows inside the party, you know, the Republican Party, well, if it wins into the party, then it's the party of government. I think that there is still a substantial threat in the U.S. of this right-wing populism, in fact, taking over the Republican Party. I think it is a definitely, it remains a threat. Even if Trump is down today, he's not out. And if you poll inside the Republican Party, his ideas, you know, the MAGA ideas, still all sway. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. One of the next questions I was going to ask you was about Trump and Governor DeSantis. And I personally think that they belong more or less to the same wing of the party. Uh, DeSantis has, by and large, learned the lessons of Trumpism. And he's part of this sort of broader populist element uh, of the Republican Party. So what exactly are we seeing when it comes to the Republican Party? What should we expect over the next two years? What kind of struggle should we expect leadership-wise? We're going to see a lot of competition inside the Republican Party. So you probably know that former President Trump announced that he was running for 2024. He announced that a week after the midterms. We suspect the plan was for him to ride the coattails of his candidate victory in the midterm before all the results were in. He had announced that he would make a big announcement on November 15. Mm. So even as his candidates disappointed, he had to come out with a big announcement on the 15. And because he was on a posture, in a defensive posture, because his candidates lost, and Ron DeSantis did extremely well in Florida. He is now in a kind of race with DeSantis for primacy or leadership inside the Republican Party. We're going to see a lot of that, a lot of competition between the two. The Virginia governor, Glenn Youngkin, has really raised his profile also throughout these midterms, you know, supporting Republican candidates left and right. He is also a rising star in the party. I think we should not, we should not discount it. Where the Republican Party goes, whether it goes with Trump 
whether it goes with Trumpism, so Trumpist candidates who are not Trump, or whether it goes back to what we used to call establishment Republicans, will be decided by the base. And the base, again, that has strong affiliation to the MAGA ideas. So I think we'll see a lot of choppy waters in the Republican Party for the next two years. Two questions. The first is a very quick one. I suppose Glenn Youngkin, he's much closer to what we would call an establishment Republican, correct? Yes. Yes. His past would suggest that, (laughs) right? His past, his work, yes, would suggest that. But if you look at what he's doing in Virginia, he's very big into the culture war. What do we teach in schools? Parenting rights. How do we teach the history of Virginia? Were the founding fathers racist or not? Is it a good topic to teach in school or not? He's been at the forefront of that policy debate, like Ron DeSantis in Florida. He went to campaign for Kerry Lake in Arizona. If he were to become president, you know, what would he, is this, a real philosophical conversion? Or is it, well, he's saying that because the base, because it's a base pleaser, but he will govern more to the center? Well, I don't know. Nobody knows yet. Well, that's nonetheless quite concerning because the three candidates you've mentioned here, Trump, DeSantis, and Youngkin, are all trending towards the populist right. Do you see any alternative emerging really within the Republican Party? Um, yes, I think there could be. Whether they're interested or not, I don't know. But somebody like Larry Hogan in Maryland, he's governor until January, is really a moderate anti-Trump. He's made it clear. Another one is Chris Sununu, the governor in New Hampshire. Also moderate, refused, I mean, both of them refused to run for Senate seats because they feel that the Republican Party is not not in a good place. I think we should not discount that least chain name I ran in the primary, clearly as the poster child of the anti-Trump candidate, Mm. of the anti-Trump ideology. So I think we could see those. I don't know if they can really survive um, a Republican primary. In terms of the issues, they're sort of on the other side of the populace when it comes to immigration. They're certainly on the other side of the Republicans when it comes to um, economics in the broadest sense, I suppose, if not the Biden economy. So really, that leaves them what? That leaves them just inflation and crime still, essentially. Yes, I, I think it's if they have a path to the Republican nomination, it's a very narrow one. Hmm on the issues. They have few policy agreements with where the base of the party seems to be. Do you think we're seeing a complete realignment of the political parties in the US, given the importance of populism in in the Republican Party, given the evolving democratic stance on foreign policy? I don't think it's a complete realignment of the parties, but I think that to an extent, yes, because we are seeing both parties trying to compete for the support of the people who have been 
losing or who feel they've been losing to globalization and to how the international economic system is working. Trump shifted the US government policy toward, let's say, a more protectionist stance. And Biden, by and large, is on the same track. He's not reversed the policy. He's tweaked at the margin what Trump was doing, but not much more. Same thing on immigration. The Trump administration really seriously slowed immigration after the 2016 election. And Biden has not relaxed in all the policies, by and large. So yes, there is a there is this realignment on some issues. Same thing in the elections. We've seen, even in some Republican states, we've seen some progressive issues fare very well. You've had abortion. I mentioned that earlier, but voters also you know, adopted new laws for pay increases or workers' rights in some democratic states like Nevada, Illinois, or D.C., but also in Nebraska. That Nebraska is as red as, you know, it comes these days. South Dakota, also a red state, voted for Medicaid expansion. Four states ended legalized slavery. Michigan and Connecticut expanded voting rights, and Arizona passed a law to promote the transparency of dark money. So yes, I think that you see a reshaping ideologically in the countries, but the realignment is not, it's not a complete flip of one's ideology, but there is an overlap now and an increased competition, yeah, on some similar, very similar issues. I mean, that makes sense. Do you think reshoring Biden's uh, increasing push for uh, manufacturing to return to the United States, which was initially one of the main factors of the Trump 2016 campaign, do you think that'll have an impact on the way that party politics are evolving? Well, it, I think it depends what is your time horizon. If it's for 2024, I will say probably doubtful because reshoring takes time. Yes, we have pledges of companies wanting to reshore away from China. Yes, okay. But it's not going to be this. They are not going to restore the manufacturing footprint of yesteryear, right? They are not going to create factories with 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 workers, you know, blue uneducated workers. The manufacturing that's coming back is going to be high-end, highly automated, requiring an education above um, high school level. Is that going to be enough of a social transformation to trigger a political realignment? I think that's a tough ask. Fair enough. I think that's a good answer. <laughs> All right. Well, we've discussed sort of what's happening. I want to take a look at the more immediate future. So what's on the horizon for the 2022 legislative session? A very, very busy lame duck session. So until December, we're going to see a lot of action. This is the 
Democrats' last chance to pass major legislation that will be signed into law by the president. Same-sex marriage is already on the docket. I think Schumer came out this morning and said, the bill is ready, it's going to be discussed, and it's going to be voted right after Thanksgiving. So that will provide federal protection. Anyone who is in a same-sex marriage anywhere in the United States will have his or her marriage recognized under federal law. That will not be, you know, anymore. Oh, if you live in Massachusetts or Virginia, yes, it is legal. But if you go live in Kansas or somewhere else, then it's not no longer recognized. So there will be no more of that. So that's one. The Democrats will also try to pass a budget because we still do not have a 2023 budget. They can pass it as a reconciliation bill. They have that possibility. So I think they could do that. If they cannot get to the budget, they will, and I suspect that this will pass without much problem, they will pass a continuing resolution. So we should avoid a government shutdown right before Christmas. Encouraging news. Yes. Yes, it's pretty disruptive. I talked about it earlier. They could do the same thing with the debt ceiling. So I think we'll have some of that. What's also on the docket for the land accession is more aid to Ukraine. And then there will be also more money for COVID mitigation so that people can get their vaccines free, these kind of things. We still do not have enough of the population that's vaccinated. So all this, I expect to have some resolution uh, before the end of the legislative session. For the new one, we're going to have investigations in the Republican House. I think the first item for investigations will be the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm. But that seems to be the one that the Republicans are more interested in starting. Or at least reminding people of. Yes, and I think it's also one, it's, it's done. It will be a great tool to poke the administration, to say, oh, the administration is incompetent, etc. But there is no policy remedy that the Republicans have to go on the record. No, because Afghanistan is done. We've left and we're not going back. So it's in terms of political tactic, it's really a freebie for the Republicans. So... I think that they're going to go after that one. They will likely go after Hunter Biden because that's the same kind of political. There is no political liability for them in in going after the son of the president. In terms of legislative activity, I mean, real legislative activity, policymaking activity, I think that the chances of any issue being prone to bipartisanship outside of anti-China policies is pretty slim. I think we'll see the Republicans opposing new spending in the name of we need to restrain spending, you know, it's bad for inflation, etc. Ukraine aid will likely be curtailed. 
the Republicans will try to shift, in my view, the conversation toward, well, you know, Ukraine is a European problem, the Europeans need to do more to shift the conversation like this. There is still a lot of money that's been allocated and that has not been spent yet. So that will continue in the new year. So I don't think that the Biden administration will need new money allocated in January or in February or March. But over time, the Ukraine aid question will come back to the forefront of the discussion. And we'll very likely see the Republicans in the House push for more anti-Chinese policies, so more export restrictions, export controls. It could be tough for American companies who do business in China to really position themselves. And it will also be a thorn in European companies who plan to have both or who have both China operations and U.S. operations. And the last piece that we'll probably see from the House Republicans is investigations into big tech, Hmm. both on the antitrust and on the supposed censorship of conservative voices. Right. Well, to be fair, investigations of big tech are to some degree long overdue. This is one of the things that I feel that the Europeans are just better at in general, dealing with evolving technology. I have no idea why the American public sector is so inefficient when it comes to managing data protection or technology regulation in general. But I digress. Uh, I, I wanted to talk specifically more about Ukraine, China. That's already a very big topic. But specifically, how do you think this will affect like this this divided Congress, this pullback when it comes to certain elements of foreign policy and this going further when it comes to putting tariffs and sanctions on trade with China, uh, how do you think this will affect American relations with European countries? How will this affect transatlantic relationships? This is a very tricky issue, and this is an underlying irritant in the transatlantic relationship. Many Europeans at this point feel that the export controls and under the disguise of keeping China in check, that U.S. trade policy is actually hurting America's allies. We see it, the European Union and the South Koreans Mm. and the Japanese Mm. are dissatisfied to say the least, with the Inflation Reduction Act and the tax credits that go to electrical vehicles, because these are reserved for cars built by companies who are either building in the USMCA environment or who have plans to reshore to the US in the near future. So that excludes European cars, by and large, made in Europe, and it excludes South Korean and Japanese cars made domestically. This is a major irritant in the transatlantic relationship, and the issue has been raised to secretarial level. As 
does the U.S. plan more export controls toward China to prevent its rise in the technology value chain, I suspect we're going to see more of those issues pop up. The U.S. administration talks a very good game about nearshoring, reassuring, or allied shoring. But we are seeing and we know how to do reshoring or nearshoring. Nobody knows what allied shoring means. It's never been done and it doesn't seem to have a real substance to it. So, yeah, I think this needs to be managed very carefully because otherwise we could see really self-defeating protectionist tit for tat that in the end is not particularly helpful. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't imagine that ever happening. <laughs> yes. But the other part of that question, or I suppose to go back to the origin of that question, the other thing that I think it's important to get into is Ukraine and what it would mean if a divided Congress reduced funding for the ongoing efforts by the Ukrainian government, re- reduced aid. How would Europe take that? There is a part of the Republican caucus that wants to reduce American aid on the grounds that, well, you know, we've helped enough. You know, it's always the guns and butter issue that there is a better use for that money domestically. If there is a vote, whether what is left of the mainstream Republicans would not vote for Ukraine aid, in my view, is still debatable. I think that if push come to shove, if the president were to go to Congress, he could convince enough Republicans to vote more Ukraine aid, but possibly less than the administration would want, one. And two, the Republicans will still put the debate to the forefront. How would the Europeans respond? I think that ultimately they will respond with more aid. And I think that Ukraine could actually lower its expectations. The fundamental risk of all these discussions, if they happen in a open, public, acrimonious manner, is in fact to embolden Russia into, well, you know, I can wait those guys out. I think that's really the real, that's the real risk, is that all this talk emboldens Russia Mm. to wait out for better times and thinks, oh, the West always tires of engagements and I can wait them out. That's begging me to start a completely different discussion with you. (laughs) I won't. Because, you know, we only have a limited amount of time, but perhaps some later point we can come back to that. But for the time being, all right, so we've gone to Europe. Uh, We've talked to some degree about U.S. relations in Asia and how they're affected by the 2022 midterms. So let's really get back to the meat of things and talk about the big thing on the horizon uh, from an electoral perspective. Fight night 2024, almost immediately following... Trump's announcement of his run for 2024, Biden also confirmed that he would be, in fact, running again, or rather he he confirmed in a more concrete fashion that he would be running in 2024. So what are the odds of a Trump-Biden matchup? But also the question that is presupposed by that question, which is, what's the likelihood that either of these 
functional incumbents will be overturned by their parties. And I know we discussed this for Trump already, but I, I kind of want to see what you have to say about Biden and the Democratic Party as well. So, again, I mean, this is really an American specificity that you just close an election. You know, the ink is barely dry on the results <laughs> and you start discussing the next one. <laughs> if I had to speculate, I'd say it'd have to do with the importance of accumulating funds. <laughs> yes, possibly so. It's still very early to talk about 2024. When people in Europe always ask you about this, you know, the next election, the next. And I, my standard response is, look, hold on to your horses. It's still early. And I remind people that in 1992, Bill Clinton appeared on the scene in January 1992. He really became a viable candidate in the spring. Hmm. There is always the possibility of a surgeon last minute candidate. So Trump, as I mentioned, we know he said he's running and he has filed a paperwork with the FEC. So he's officially a candidate. Biden, yes, Biden has said that he will run. So here is the situation for Biden. Usually a sitting first term president always runs for re-election. There is no primary on the incumbent side most of the time, or a pro forma one that is completely irrelevant. But it is now the first time that the sitting incumbent will be 82 when he runs again. We don't have a playbook for that. And I do not believe Biden has not filed the paperwork with the FEC. So it's unclear to me that he says that because the Democrats do not want any kind of speculation as to who will run in 2024. And if he doesn't, there will need to be some crafty way of picking a candidate, whether it's a primary or a backroom deal. I don't know. But I, if you go back to 2020, there was a lot of talk at the time that when he picked Kamala Harris to be his vice president, that, well, Biden would be the first term and then Kamala Harris would be the candidate in 2024. She's a woman. She's had a stellar career. She will have four years as VP under her belt gotten like international exposure, being introduced to other world leaders. It could be a real transition. I mean, up until now, she doesn't seem to have traction. So on the Democratic side, I think that, you know, it's really too early to say, yes, it will be a 2020 rematch. I think that there are viable candidates inside the Democratic Party that we could see rise up to the occasion. Hmm. Gavin Newsom, hmm. the governor in California, potentially could be one of those candidates. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. Hmm. She did very, very well in her re-election. I personally think there could be some cabinet members who could foot the bill. 
Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, has spent the last year since the infrastructure bill was passed crisscrossing the country selling the infrastructure bill. Look, he has the best job ever. He's disbursing billions of dollars <laughs> to local communities. No, I mean, think in terms of electoral politics, you want to be known as the guy who shows up in town. With the money hose? With money. And he's saying, well, you know that bridge, this is our policy and I was in charge. Right. That school, that park or this is a unique opportunity for him to build political capital and connection. So this is one. I think Jennifer Granholm, Department of Energy, is in maybe not as good a situation as as Buttigieg, but could also be considered. Well, now would certainly be a good time for an energy secretary to emerge as a leading candidate. <laughs> it's, it's a required expertise, yes. Mm. I, I got to admit, Pete Buttigieg, um, how do I put this? He endeared himself to me personally today when I discovered that the Department of Transportation is becoming particularly litigious with airlines that refuse to pay for delays and cancellations. And I got to admit that, you know, seeing that they had just obligated, that like six different airlines had been obligated to pay something along the lines of $600 million in unpaid fees, that warmed my heart, although it has yet to, uh, to thicken my wallet, though, you know, here's to hoping. Um, just wait, wait. Hmm. It's, it's coming. All right. Well, that's this has turned out to be a pretty long interview. So I usually close things out with a fun question. Okay. I do my best. I think I'm going to try and make you sweat a little, let you exercise a little creativity. If the U.S. were to have a functional third party, what would it be and what should it be? Well, yes, that's a curveball. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. But what it should be, I, I cannot really answer that because, you know, my personal preference is irrelevant to the audience. But what could it be? I just, at this point, I just do not see any kind of third party emerging. I really don't. I think... But I think it's unrealistic. Hmm. I mean, that's fair. Because of the polarization. But Hmm. I think that the space that's not occupied really today by a really a representative political force is the middle between the progressives on the democratic side and, let's say, the populist far right. I think that you have two kind of slightly shrinking moderate wings or establishment wings in both the Republican and the Democratic Party. And those, so they're divided, so they're not really an electoral option, but maybe that could be the base for a third party, but I actually do not think it is um, it is viable at this point. I think that the two-party system makes it really impossible to emerge as a viable political force. And by the way, 
the fact that we do not have in the U.S. a viable third party is because of the electoral system. If you want to have a third party emerge, you, we need to change the electoral system. And I honestly do not see that happening. Well, I mean, first of all, I agree with you completely, both in terms of where there is um, free real estate, so to speak, uh, and in terms of the fact that there's no way with the existing institutions, they lend themselves too well to a two-party system. That being said, I, I suppose there's a little hope with the emergence of, uh, of ranked choice voting that some of that territory might be more occupied. Yeah. If I remember correctly, that was on the, uh, on the ballot in a couple of states, even this election in Nevada, unless I'm much mistaken, maybe somewhere else. Um, yes, it is the law, for example, in Alaska. Hmm. And I think we're still waiting for the results, the final results of the Senate race there. And yes, there are a couple of states now, I, I'm sorry, but I don't remember which, but yes, there are a couple of states that are thinking about switching to ranked choice voting. I think that that would definitely lessen partisanship. I agree. And that could allow the emergence of a middle. All right. Well, excellent job with the curveball. I think in that case, it's a, it's a good time for us to sign out. Pascal, thank you, for, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. No, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com. And stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. <laughs>